yapıyor Zagic? Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And this time, we're here to tackle 1996's Eraser. Subtitle Arnold Schwarzenegger explores 1990s movie tropes and character actors. And guitar solos. And a lot of guitar solos. <laughs> yes. This movie's really interesting and in that this was Arnold's action movie follow-up to True Lies. And, I mean, all eyes were on this because... Could this movie ever compete, you know, a big summer movie following up the adventures of Tom, Arnold, and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Could you ever <laughs> create something as memorable as that? And, of course, if you go back in our archives to episode number three, we did our True Lies episode and talked all about that movie and how influential it was on the two of us at that time period. Was it really episode number three? It feels like only yesterday. A little uh, behind the scenes for the people at home who listen to this show. Um, True Lies was our third episode in the uh, you know the old slots and when we released it, but I think it was like our eighth or ninth recorded episode. We so. don't want to say that to the people out there. Why not? Let them behind the scenes. Come on. <laughs> They're right. long-term listeners. <laughs> All right. Sure. <laughs> well, peek behind the curtain. That's right. See that's the right. magic. So, Tony, I want to know, summer 1996, you're like 15 years old. Do you well, remember seeing Eraser? I do, actually. I went to go see it in the theater, and I, uh, I'd i actually seen it a couple times since then, although it had been some time since I'd seen it. How about you? Did you see Eraser when it first came out? No. No? You uh, you had watched Junior and decided to give Schwarzenegger a break until Jingle All the Way was released, which is you know quite a couple of pieces of bread for the meat of this sandwich, <laughs> let me tell you. No, what happened was, and I'm actually, I want a little bit of background info on you here, because... This movie came out, I could not have been more excited about seeing Eraser. And it was 18A here in Canada, and I couldn't go see it. So I ended up having to wait until home video. Now, how did you see it? Uh, last I checked, the security detail that they had at the Cineplex <laughs> wasn't really uh, on high alert for Eraser. <laughs> I just know the first R-rated movie and in Canada, 18A movie, I saw in theaters was in 1997, the following year, was Alien Resurrection. And so, yeah, I remember... Which I went to see with you, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you and I. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing this movie at home because it was a period of time when our house was under renovation. So we created this very cobbled-together makeshift TV room in the living room. It was very tiny, this like little space we'd created in the corner. Were you living in a couch cushion hut at the time? <laughs> Pretty much. And I remember Eraser, not because the experience of watching Eraser was so memorable, but I just remember that time period of watching Eraser, Nutty Professor, Mission Impossible. <laughs> all these movies from the summer of 1996 all coming out in video, you know, in that November, October kind of period. Okay, good. It's a, it's a temporal thing. I was worried that you were going to somehow try and classify the Nutty Professor and Eraser in the same uh, same category. Some, some kind of qualitative similarity between the two. Well, maybe there is some uh, quality similarity. We'll get to that in a minute. But I'm curious, at the time, did you enjoy Eraser? I remember at the time uh, enjoying it, and I, I have revisited it a couple times since originally seeing it as a 
after sneaking into the theater. But I, I also remember thinking uh, at the time that it had its flaws. I mean, Schwarzenegger, I mean, for those of you who are maybe a little younger and Schwarzenegger is, you know, a star of yesteryear, maybe. and maybe How dare you? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you didn't get to see Wonders it. of the Sea 3D. <laughs> yeah, when's that coming out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it said September, and here we are. Yeah, <laughs> coming to the end of 2018. Yeah, but you know, maybe you didn't get to see Schwarzenegger in the uh, 80s and 90s as an original star, and these are movies that maybe you've just revisited. But uh, or seen on TBS. Yeah, exactly. I don't think people are watching TBS these days. No, I guess not. I don't know. Yeah, but. Um, we were maybe a little bit more critical and a little less forgiving of uh, some of Schwarzenegger's movies than we are today. Right. No, I think that's fairly accurate. I remember seeing this movie, yeah, at home, and I was super amped to see it because I remember all of the hype surrounding this movie when it was released. And that, to my young mind, this movie got really good reviews. Which, looking back now, and, you know, at Rotten Tomatoes, you're like, no, this movie wasn't reviewed well at all, but... From the small section of reviews I was seeing at the time, this movie got good reviews. So this is like, you know, local Vancouver papers. I remember Ebert and Cisco both gave it thumbs up. So that was about all I needed. I think Entertainment Weekly gave it like a B. So I was really like, oh man, it's another Arnold Spectacular that everyone loves. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing. I never really thought about it. But nowadays it's so easy just to get an aggregate rating on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. But really, back in the day, you were kind of limited to the reviews that you actually saw in whatever magazine or newspaper or TV show that you happen to be watching. So, uh, in general, for a movie review at the time, I relied on Siskel and Ebert, wh- yep. whatever was in our local paper. Yep. And, you know, maybe some quote that they would have on the movie poster would said spectacular chicago <laughs> tribune and you would also see maybe like leonard malton's movie guide or something like that you were way ahead of me then oh wow okay i didn't actually follow leonard malton i followed there was another video guide a competing one put out by i think it was mick martin and marcia porter and it was called video movie guide and i like read that one religiously well i mean in any event for eraser i really strongly remember the trailer oh uh, yeah like i remember the the crocodiles in the trailer. I remember the rail guns in the trailer. Yeah, well, the rail gun is the part of the reason I was so amped for this movie. I just remember a big talking point to the whole release of the movie was these rail guns and how it was real world technology being used in this movie for the first time ever. And I was like, I have to see this. And so I remember watching it at home and enjoying it, but also being kind of like not as good as True Lies. And I never saw it again. For this revisit for this podcast, this is the second time I've seen Eraser. So now it's been, uh, you know, what, 22, 23 yeah, years? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so on the revisit, on the on the journey back to Eraserland, <laughs> how was it for you, Cam? Well, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about <laughs> Eraser. You know, let's not get it all out there on Front Street. <laughs> let's just take a look at the year that it was of 1996. Eraser comes out in that June... Big summer movie, as I said. It's competing with a lot of big movies we're going to talk about in a minute. But it comes out, and it has a budget of $100 million. And I actually think... Not bad. You really see at this point, this might be where Arnold Schwarzenegger begins to lose it a bit as a box office force. Because the movie costs $100 million. Domestically, it makes $101 million. So it's a $1 million profit off a $100 million budget. And I think you begin to see a bit of a problem here, which is that 
Arnold movies are getting more and more expensive, but the audience isn't growing necessarily to support this. And I think that may be the part of the reason that we see this kind of slide into movies like, you know, we've already talked about The Sixth Day, where the budgets are getting smaller and the grosses are getting smaller. It's kind of amazing that we're really only half a decade out from Terminator 2 at this point. Yeah, I know. And the foreign for the movie was $141 million. So you had a worldwide total of 242. Nowadays, studios care about the worldwide. Back then, it was kind of just a bonus that they didn't really care. Domestic was everything to them. So, like, the movie, I'm sure they didn't lose their shirts, you know, putting the movie out or anything by any stretch of the imagination. But it was not a confidence-inspiring release. Yeah, and I remember that at the time, actually, when going to see it, and we can get back into what other movies were yeah. were released that year in a bit, but thinking to myself when I came out of the movie was, you know, that was kind of an enjoyable Schwarzenegger movie, but we have definitely crested the wave. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's the seventh highest grossing movie Arnold's ever released, but um, it was number 14 for the year, sandwiched between two movies I actually love, which is uh, the first Scream movie, right. the Wes Craven film, which is great. And the Disney uh, animated Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I am a big apologist for. I love that movie. <laughs> Unabashedly. Okay, Esmeralda. <laughs> you had that year also some of the other action stars who were kind of turning to falling stars at this point as well. Number 48, you had Daylight, which was the Stallone movie. And with a young Viggo Mortensen. That's right. As like an extreme sports guy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then at number 73, you had The Quest, the Van Damme movie. Yeah, it's hard to know if Van Damme ever really was at the top of his game. <laughs> but he seemed like he was to us at the time. That's true. Yeah. And for the year, here's the top ten. You can really see it. This was actually a really powerhouse year for big releases that I think people still remember. So at number one, you had Independence Day. Of course. Yeah. At number two, you had Twister. At number three, we had Mission Impossible, the first one, which I want to talk about a little more later. Um, in fourth place, you had Jerry Maguire. Fifth place, you had Ransom with Mel Gibson. Sixth place, The 101 Dalmatians live-action remake. Seventh place, The Rock. I think The Rock is actually really interesting on this list because I think The Rock is signaling a shift in what action movies are going to be. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Eraser is a nod to what they used to be. Yeah, probably a, maybe a little bit along with Mission Impossible there. Actually. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, eighth place was The Nutty Professor, which I referenced earlier, <laughs> uh, the Eddie Murphy version. Ninth place was The Birdcage. Do you remember that? The Robin Williams the comedy? The casual fall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 10th place was A Time to Kill, the John Grisham adaptation. You know, this was a pretty powerhouse year. and uh, Well, for Helen Hunt and Tom Cruise anyways. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, and Matthew McConaughey launched onto the screen in A Time to Kill. Yeah, no all right, all right, all right. Who knew? <laughs> but it does feel like you're seeing a shift here in like, the movies are becoming big hits or more special effects driven in terms of the blockbusters, more high concept then kind of the simple pleasures Eraser is delivering. I mean, Eraser is expensive, but it's pretty straightforward stuff compared to like your Mission Impossibles and your Twisters and your Independence Days. I don't know if I'd call it straightforward stuff. I, I mean, it, there is about seven different plots going on at the same time, <laughs> which, you know, when you look at something like Twister, it's basically there's a windstorm, get out of here. Sure, that's true. 
Twister, though, feels very much like following up speed, right? It's kind of that, uh, well, it's same director, first of all, but it's that basic, simple action movie premise. You know, people trapped on a bus. This one's people chasing tornadoes. <laughs> yeah, and it's poor, all about the Poorly effects. rendered, computer-generated <laughs> tomatoes. Or not tomatoes, <laughs> tornadoes. That's a different movie. No, no, it was a spin-off of a, <laughs> yeah. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yeah, Attack of the Killer Tornadoes. <laughs> George Clooney had a cameo. <laughs> so, it's interesting that that year, it was not a huge hit. It did get an Oscar nomination. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, more power to it. It was the Suicide Squad of its day, <laughs> scoring an Oscar nomination. It got a Best Sound Effects Editing Oscar nomination. However, it lost to The Ghost in the Darkness, the Michael Douglas Val Kilmer lion hunting movie. You know, that's amazing. If you were to ask me who won Best Sound that year... Wouldn't you have thought Independence Day or Twister? Yes. Not even nominated. Yeah, I Is know. that not crazy? It is a little crazy. This, I mean, but... You know, this has been a long-standing thing with the Academy. They just don't nominate enough windstorms. <laughs> the other nominee for sound effects editing was Daylight. What a weird bunch of choices, eh? I mean, I I, I, maybe this, maybe the sound guys in the Academy know something that we don't when when there's stuff in these ballots. But they still study eraser. Yeah, right now there's some professor in Berkeley Film School. <laughs> Running through the ghosts in the darkness and then assigning some eraser homework. Listen to those rail guns and take notes. <laughs> so if you are just joining us, uh, we are going to spoil the movie in almost entirely. Uh, we hope that anyone listening to the podcast has had the opportunity to go ahead and watch the movie so you can join us and know what we're talking about. But you, You've had 22 years. <laughs> that's right. But if you haven't, uh, by all means, listen but uh, and and you know use this podcast as a jumping off point into your exploration into the eraser component of your cinema degree. <laughs> but uh, we will be spoiling the movie for you. Right. Okay. So let's get to the movie and watching it this time around. Tony revisiting it. I think we were both kind of excited for this one because it is a big Arnold spectacular from an era where we were teenagers going to these movies. Well, at least you were. I wasn't allowed to go see this one. But it is sort of that era of excitement. What was it like revisiting it now? You know, I think you're right. It is a little bit of a, a lesser, later entry in Schwarzenegger's main period there. Right. And it was good. I, I enjoyed it. You kind of have to turn your brain off a little bit on this one. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the podcast. <laughs> I do that every episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It was entertaining. I mean, I could not believe the number of derivative movie tropes. And it seemed like every actor in this movie yeah. was an actor that you had seen playing the same role in like a hundred different movies and TV shows. <laughs> My favorite was the computer guy in the, that the villains have working for them who gets to turn around and go, we've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, that was his entire job. It's like, we need, we need a guy with a ponytail who stares at a screen and just says, we have a problem over and over again. How many people have been cast in that position of the computer hacker guy who has to say, we've got a problem? Yeah, or enhance. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Enhance. I don't know. Usually the guy standing over his shoulder is the one saying enhance. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the James Caan role in this case. <laughs> Except James Caan in this movie would have been like, enhancer, I'll kill you. He was a very poor employer. Yeah, he was not their first choice for who they wanted in this movie. They wanted Jonathan Price, apparently. Yeah, I know. That would have been interesting, eh? Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Price is great. And he ended up doing, like, a real sneering villain the next year in the Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies. Of course, And yeah. he's a blast in that. But, uh, you know, what could have been, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, this movie, revisiting it, it was interesting in that 
I would say for the first half of this movie, I was getting flashbacks to the sixth day. Where I was like, oh, this is not that interesting. Like, this is kind of rudimentary stuff. Uh, I thought you enjoyed the sixth day. Nah, not really. It was okay. <laughs> We're going to go back and re- re-listen to that you podcast. You can go back and re-listen. I think I <laughs> I know where I stood on it. Uh, this is, Sixth Day is one of those movies I've just projected <laughs> your <laughs> you own know? love for it onto me. Yeah. <laughs> it onto you. Yeah, uh, it was thoroughly okay. But this one, for the first half, I was like, ooh, this is not popping the way I hoped it would. And uh, then something happened, Tony. Arnold Schwarzenegger was on a plane. He got thrown out of the plane. And then he had a face-off, of a game of chicken, if you will, against said plane. And at that point, the movie came to life. And I was treated to just an endless series of, like, absolutely absurd action moments. And it became more of a man-on-the-run, chased by villains that are basically insane and willing to destroy the entire world just to get him. And at that point, I kind of got on board. Like, I actually enjoyed it. It was a lot more fun for me at that point. Yeah, I know what you mean a little bit. I I, I wouldn't go so far. I mean, the, the sixth day, uh, I, I'm on board in one sense that it is thoroughly okay. Yes. Uh, but I really enjoy just how thoroughly okay it is. Right. I think we talked about it at length on our previous episode. Yeah, it's a fun episode. Check it out, people. <laughs> yeah, make that number two on your list. <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean. It was, I wouldn't say run down, but serviceable action. Right. I thought there was some cool stuff in there. We did get to see the rail guns. We got to see the exploding shrapnel bomb before that. Yeah. Okay, let's start with the early section of this movie. I thought the opening, where you have Arnold Schwarzenegger breaking out uh, Robert Pastorelli. The late Robert Pastorelli, actually. He was so great. I used to like him a lot, seeing him pop up. He was so much fun on Murphy Brown as Eldon. Yeah, yeah, the painter. Yeah, but um, we opened with the movie with Arnold basically saving him from, I don't know, hired goons of some type. And I enjoyed this opening action sequence. Like, it was really fun. It had some cool stuff like Arnold, you know, tethering down like a cable and wrapping it around a guy's neck and then hanging him, slamming a guy's head in a fridge and breaking his neck. Like, fun stuff like that. Totally. It started strong. And I like the whole opening credits of Arnold getting ready for this little caper. Uh, there was multiple scenes in this movie of that harkened a little bit back to Commando. Basically, yeah. close-ups of... You know, knives getting thrown into sheaths and guns being slung over shoulders. They really set up that knife in the belt. (laughs) They sure did. They showed it like three times before it even came into play. (laughs) I think they showed it in slow motion, (laughs) in sepia tone. They zoomed in digitally. At no point was I wondering, is he ever going to take this knife out and use it? And I like that the character he attacked with it, James Caan, commented on said knife as well. (laughs) Yeah, calling it a uh, cheap piece of crap (laughs) but no i in this opening i was really into it like i thought it was a fun way to introduce the character and that he is this unconventional cleaner type who gets these people you know into witness protection or if they're in witness protection gets them into i don't know deeper witness protection i guess is that the way it works yeah it's not (laughs) it's one of those movies where (laughs) and we'll talk a little bit more about this stuff but you can't really be you can't really put too much of a microscope on what exactly it is he does because <laughs> he is intermittently described as being the best witness protection dude around. Yeah. But he's a US Marshal, right? Uh he is. Yeah. Last I checked most US Marshals They were hunting Harrison Ford, I thought. <laughs> uh last I checked most US Marshals aren't uh 
cruising around uh stealing bodies from morgues <laughs> and blowing houses up in order to hide people using like a computer pen to swap dental records that's right <laughs> yeah uh no i agree but i like this opening sequence it sets his character up as kind of an unconventional type a little bit of a kind of like the mechanic like the charles bronson character they did a little bit of the uh the only time Schwarzenegger ever wears a mask is, yeah, yeah. is when they need to bring in somebody who can actually fight. <laughs> Do parkour. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And he's doing, like, flips and everything. And you could tell Arnold lost some weight for this movie. Like, he looked more svelte than in other movies. Yeah, he was pretty trim. Yeah, yeah. He, he looked not like someone who could do the backflips he does later in this movie, but... You could see that he was getting into a shape where it looked like he would be able to do more, like, stealth techniques than the typical, you know, brute force stuff we've seen in other movies. Yeah, more spin kicks. Right. (laughs) But, no, like, I thought after this opening, though, the movie kind of settled into a mode that I just found a little tedious. Like, I think a big part of the problem is the movie really focuses, especially in the first half, on this Vanessa Williams character, um, Lee Cullen, who works for this weapons company Cyrez and is leaking out information to the FBI about their dirty dealings with foreign powers to get these railgun weapons. And as I'm watching Lee Cullen steal data on a CD-ROM <laughs> and deal with the FBI, it just felt very... Um, Was it as gripping as Tom Cruise stealing data? You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that movie comes out a month before this movie does. And you have, in that movie, computer hacking sequences staged about as awesome as any computer hacking sequence ever staged. And iconic. It's a scene that people still evoke nowadays in action movies. Absolutely, yeah. And then you follow this up with Vanessa Williams sitting there, like, putting CD-ROMs in and out. And it's just not that interesting. I will say that this was a period of time in movies. I think there was a lot of movies released at this time where people were waiting for things to copy, and that was somehow the timer on the bomb. Right. Uh, it was there. I remember that was the case in Under Siege Two when they were trying to. I think they were actually trying to hook up a modem at that point. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there was a bunch of movies released where somebody's staring at a taskbar on a computer screen, yeah. going, "Come on, come on, come on, come on." Probably hackers. Yeah, and in this case, I mean, I, I want I, as we go through this, I really want to mention some of these tropes that, sure, yeah. that I found pretty funny. While she's doing this copying, the FBI is monitoring uh, her activity. They've given her a, a microphone and a little brooch yeah. camera. I love the technology in this movie, by the way. It's all <laughs> about as AOL as you can get. <laughs> and at one point they say... Uh, She's only got five minutes before the shift change, which I don't know. <laughs> I'm not at all clear on what shift is changing or why would the, or why would that matter if she's in an abandoned vault or a vault with nobody in it. Does it mean there's a window when there's no security? But she went on the thr- vault. She went through security. Yeah. To get there. Or is it the FBI? The next shift's coming and they have a very strong union and they're not allowed to overlap shifts. <laughs> Whatever the case. They don't want to get paid overtime. It was not clear to me at all. I mean, obviously she would have to be quick about it so that she wouldn't get caught. Yeah. But the reason she got caught wasn't the shift change at all. It was because her boss, the farmer from Babe... He had it quite a year because this is the same year he does Star Trek First Contact. 
And uh, I think the general's daughter might come out this same year. Maybe that was the next year. But like James Cromwell got a lot of work in he, the wake of Babe. He was a busy guy this he year. He was, yeah. Not that he had a lot to do in this movie. No, he did not. But the only reason she got caught wasn't because of any kind of shift change. It was because uh, she was seen on the CCTV, yeah. which apparently was just being watched by her boss in the office all the time anyways. <laughs> the FBI like, oops. <laughs> Uh, same thing with uh, the other trope that I couldn't really figure out why they had it was uh, her communications gear, her camera, and her microphone go out when she's in the vault. Right. Because I guess the vault is shielded. Yeah. But it, again, it wasn't at all clear why that was the case or secondly, what that had to do with anything at all that happened in the movie because it didn't really seem necessary in any way for her to be able to communicate with the FBI while she was in the vault. I mean, I guess it was mostly so we could just have cutbacks to John Slattery saying like, what's going on? She's got to hurry up. <laughs> it was just adding tension to the movie, I suppose, <laughs> or attempts at tension of FBI guys going, she's got to hurry up. She's got to hurry up. Time's running out. Yeah, more adding minutes to the movie than <laughs> tension. <laughs> I mean, this section to me, not the most interesting. And Vanessa Williams is a fine actress. I mean, I've seen her in a few things. Um, and she was definitely acting quite a bit at this point in time. But like, did you feel like Vanessa Williams in this movie was kind of cast in a dead-end role in terms of personality? Like, this Lee Cullen character had zero personality, and I don't know that Vanessa Williams is an actress who's going to infuse a nothing role with, like, a lot of quirky personality. Like, I think Jamie Lee Curtis was far better at that with True Lies. Like, that's a, that's a well, it's a better written role in the first place, but I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis brings a lot of personality, whereas... Vanessa Williams did not in this movie for me. And the whole first half of the movie is really Vanessa Williams-centric. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with Vanessa Williams at all in this movie, but I will agree with you that she was... Uh, Lee Cullen wasn't a particularly well-written or well-rounded character. Can you tell me a personality trait of hers? She had an ex-boy... That's not really a personality <laughs> trait. By the way, have you ever... <laughs> been less surprised when the her dirtbag ex-boyfriend yeah. got killed have you ever been less surprised about a character dying in a movie he showed up purely to uh, show what could happen when human flesh meets a railgun bullet <laughs> but i guess she's determined she's plucky but did you ever get a sense of why she was doing this like why she signed up with the fbi it seemed like a strong moral compass but it seemed like this character is fiercely determined but she didn't really seem like a fiercely determined character on screen. She seemed fairly determined. She seemed like, eh, I should probably get this done. She's willing to see it through. I guess so. Yeah. Does this woman have any life? She's got an ex-boyfriend. We know that. <laughs> Does she have any friends? She's got a journalist. Well, not anymore. The journalist was killed. <laughs> <laughs> and the ex-boyfriend. And the ex-boyfriend. So no, now, and her life was erased. Yeah. So no, she, by definition, I think as part of this movie, she has no life. That's kind of the whole point. <laughs> but Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in at this point, and I was hoping for a little more excitement in the part where he is helping her escape. Did you find this part of the movie interesting when he was getting her to that, was it cabin or something in front of the fire? Oh, of course. I thought it was very strange uh, that... Arnold Schwarzenegger as apparently the best witness. I, I, I want to know what the actual noun is for this. The best witness protection guy yeah. uh, in the business. Uh, apparently it gives soliloquies about uh, your life is not on these cards. What's really important is 
what's in here. I'm pointing at my heart now for those of you who are yeah. li- listening instead of watching. Yeah. Uh, and no one can take that away from you. It's interesting to me, though, this whole movie is pitched as, like, Vanessa Williams is invaluable to this movie. She is the one who's going to testify against these people selling these weapons. All that happens with her character is other characters talk about, this woman's important, this woman is going to testify, this woman is a witness. She's never like, I need to be protected so I can take these people down. (laughs) She's more like, I just want to go back to my house. Well, in this part of the movie, it introduces... Another two plot devices that I, again, from a high altitude, they yeah. looked fine. But once you You're start, talking about when uh, they're outside the plane. Yeah, once you start lowering this flaming jet down a little lower, yeah. things start to kind of fall apart. Okay. Uh, so this is about the part one. So Vanessa Williams, or I should call her Lee Cullen, she makes two copies of the disc. One for the FBI. Correct. And... One for herself, just as in case there's insurance. I thought can... it was for the reporter. Yeah, I, I guess so. For herself slash the reporter. So right. that she has some means of, I guess, exposing this if if the FBI screws it up. <laughs> Why would the FBI ever screw something yeah. up? Well, the FBI then takes this disc, and I guess without looking at it, <laughs> or making a copy of it, or doing anything with it, Gives it to the least dependable looking evidence guy <laughs> they could find. Yeah. Who promptly sells it out to uh, Undersecretary of Defense. Whatever. Daniel Harper. Thank you. Yeah, who was played by Andy Romano, who played the Admiral in both Under Siege movies. <laughs> there you go. A lot of Under Siege references. Yeah, he's the one on the other end of the phone who's like... Who's this Ryback? Give me, give me Ryback's file. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about. He's that. our man on the inside. <laughs> Ryback's got a job to do. And he's going to get it done. Yeah. And it turns out the FBI that disc was not useful to them anyways because it can apparently only be played on a computer that is within the Cyrex or Cyrez building. And he can, and it can be erased remotely as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the disc really isn't that part. It's 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 one of many MacGuffins in this movie that yeah. don't make a lot of sense. The other thing that they first introduce in this part is they uh, hide Lee Cullen or Marshal John the Eraser Kruger hides Lee Cullen in uh, Chinatown with <laughs> Mailing. Mailing. Well, now Mailing. That's her yeah. new name. Yeah. Who informed on the Yakuza, which is. If I was doing my script checking, I would probably make sure that my Chinese actress who informed on a Chinese gang was not informing on the Yakuza, (laughs) which is a Japanese (laughs) gang. Right. But that aside, this is the first instance where Schwarzenegger's character just explains the secret identities and what they did of these people he has put into the witness protection program to other people in the witness protection program and somehow involves them in his plots. Violent plots, (laughs) putting their life in danger. It seems to me like this is the worst possible idea. This is the absolute 
opposite of what you want to do with witnesses you are protecting. There's some real fine print on Cougar's business card. It's like, yes, I will put you into witness protection, but then I'm going to call on you for favors at random moments and put you in harm's way again. And those favors can involve blocking bullets, uh, shaking people down, hiding terrorists. Because he does the same thing with Robert Pastorelli's character, who was this low-level mob guy. And he ends up finding him in a gay bar. I guess he's been relocated to work there in his new life. And Arnold goes there to pick him up. I feel like the only reason they put him in a gay bar was for jokes that just don't really fly. <laughs> I feel like that's the only reason that he's in there. Well, the jokes, the, the gay jokes aren't as bad as they were they're in, not. In, like, the, they're, in the 80s. I was expecting them to be really cringeworthy, but they were just kind of eye-rolling. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's the only reason he works there. Um, but uh, anyways, he goes to get him now to help them because they're on the run. And it's like... And, just to, and, and by doing so... Uh, I mean, I lost track of the number of crimes that Robert Pastorelli's committed, yeah. or Pastorelli committed in the course of helping uh, Kruger. Yes, uh, but certainly amongst those was breaking and entering, uh, <laughs> homicide, homicide over and over again, assault with a deadly weapon, etc., etc., etc. Not to mention, and before that, I don't know if he, if you recall, he also enlisted the help of. Uh, a priest who he had hidden in the That's witness right. protection program. Who he also revealed the identity of. <laughs> Which, again, yeah, he revealed the identity of, and I think he revealed what the guy had done before, which was really bad, and now he has found God. There was a really strange religious uh, interchange there. that They should have cast that prisoner from Red Heat, the one who found God in prison. Or Cheech Marin. Cheech Marin as well, yeah, yeah. But... Um, and again, what I'm just going to I'm going to throw out there as well is uh, when you are placing people, this is for all the U.S. Marshals listening out there. Uh, when you Tommy are, Lee Jones. <laughs> when you are placing people in... I don't know what a podcast is. <laughs> when you are I got pla- no time for that funny business. <laughs> when you are placing people in the witness protection program, here are some places that you should not place them in the interest of maintaining their anonymity. One, bartenders. <laughs> Two, priests with congregations. I don't know what Mei Ling does, but she was probably a pop singer or something like that. Yeah. But... <laughs> pop singer. <laughs> <laughs> but... The bodyguard was originally supposed to be an Eraser prequel. <laughs> so, all in all, this whole witness protection thing, it seems like what Schwarzenegger's character is good at doing is finding evidence to help vanessa williams but all of the other witnesses seem to love him but he hasn't done that good a job and he's just using them for dangerous tactics later down the road yeah uh, anyways that was... i have a lot of questions about john Kruger. <laughs> anyway that was just uh, i know it was a bit of a digression hold on, hold on is this common practice in current day u.s marshal's office yeah, I wonder if you pick up the three-ring binder that says, uh, you know, policies and practices for U.S. Marshals, uh, is, uh, you know, uh, racially insensitive witness placement, uh, <laughs> Are there homophobic witness placement, and bizarre uh, place you as a leader of a congregation witness placements, are those all standard practices? And are there covert ops being run by witnesses all day, every day? <laughs> yeah. Are our streets being protected in the U.S. by covert ops who were former <laughs> witness protected people? And you know they 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 might be. And I'm sorry I'm going on for so long. This is just really bugging me. Um, yeah. 
the other thing they kept mentioning that these witnesses were only going to be in protection until they could testify. Yeah. But all of these witnesses seemed like they were in protection forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, maybe once they became a bartender or the leader of a congregation, they loved it so much, they were like, well, might as well stay. Yeah, might as well. You know, this is the good life. <laughs> this is better than the old gig. <laughs> so, maybe it paid better. I don't know. <laughs> About this time, uh, I'll move away from the... Yes. The practices of the witness protection program, and maybe move on to the um, the technology advancements uh, possessed by the U.S. Marshals at that time, which include uh, tracing a cell phone call to a pager yeah. in midair <laughs> that you do not know is outgoing. <laughs> yeah, and, and there was a point where they drugged Kruger on the plane, and. Then when he woke up, he's like, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take us to this witness. But before they drugged him, he was already taking them to the witness. Right. Uh, so I was very confused as to what the point of drugging and shooting the the young officer on the plane so was. So they could just frame him? I guess so. I guess that was the gist of it. And we should say, like, James Caan at this point has the heel turn and comes out as the villain of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. But mind you, I mean, you know, you could see that one coming with the binoculars turned around backwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, all of that takes you through this <laughs> through this part of the movie that you weren't particularly engaged in. Right. I obviously was starting to get engaged by all these things that were happening that didn't make sense. And it takes us to the point in the movie... Where the movie that, gives up sense altogether. That you were talking about that yeah. where the movie grabbed you. Yeah, maybe part of the reason it works so well is the Vanessa Williams character is kind of shuffled off to the sidelines, and we get to see it focus on Arnold on the run, outrunning absurd methods of killing him. And, you know, this plane sequence... <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It is insane. And I didn't think it was that insane. I didn't remember it as being that insane. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, they're framing him for a murder. Okay, he's going to jump out of the plane and grab a parachute. Okay, we've seen that a million times before. That's, you know... Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's like the, many James Bond movies. The point break trope. Sure, yeah, exactly. I always think of like Moonraker, you know, the mm -hmm. opening of Moonraker, um, which had a similarly recognizable stunt double as this movie <laughs> when Arnold was in free fall. But um, then it just cuts to like shots of like Arnold doing that like fold up and flying through the flames of the like broken jet engine that he's thrown a chair into. And I'm like, this is incredible. And he's free falling. He's catching the parachute. I'm like, okay, this is awesome. It doesn't always look great, but it still looks good enough. I know what you mean. The uh, the mid-90s CG green screen combo, yeah. it's a little little shaky. It's not quite on the same level as the crocodiles, which we'll get to a bit yeah, later. I think they were alligators. But I know what you mean. It was a little shaky, and sometimes, uh, we talked a little bit about it in the sixth day, sometimes that can really hurt a yeah. movie and not work. Yeah. But here, it was pretty engaging. It was engaging. Although, you know, it's funny you say that, like, I mentioned Moonraker. I actually think it looks better in Moonraker than it does in this movie. <laughs> and that's like 20 years earlier. But, um, you know, once Arnold's floating down on a parachute, I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And then the plane turns around to take him on. And I was like, this movie's getting amazing. This was the first part, too. Or, no, it wasn't the first part. I think it was one of many parts, anyways, where uh, James Caan's character, uh, Robert DeGarren, yeah. uh, he someone disagrees with him. The pilot's just like, uh, "No, sir, I'm I'm trying to land a plane with it has one engine on fire." Yeah. And James Khan's answer to everything is just, 
pull out a gun, stick it in the guy's face, and be like, no, you're not. Yeah. You're going to drive the plane into this guy in a parachute. Very Sonny Corleone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and this moment was amazing of watching this plane fly at Arnold Schwarzenegger as he unloads his gun on it, shooting the pilot through the glass. Hell of a name for a guy on a parachute. Um, And I don't think he shot the pilot. He did, I think. The pilot got shot. I thought the pilot just dodged. Was the pilot just like flailing around mildly? Anyways, he was shooting at the pilot and may or may not have hit him. We'll have to yeah, ch- do check some, the tape for do that some one. Fact checks. Do some Zabruder tape. Close looks at this one. But, you know, this is where the movie got insane. And I loved it. Uh, and I continued to love it. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Uh, well, I don't know if I loved it uh, the same way I would some of uh, Schwarzenegger's others. No, but, no, no. Not even close. But, but, but this I is, enjoyed this is, the hell out of this This experience. is definitely where it became pretty... Well, I guess it depends. If, if you're the kind of person that likes very surgical, logical, uh, physically realistic action sequences, yeah. you will hate this movie. Right. But if you like things that you just park your brain at the door and stuff happens, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. I really do enjoy the larger-than-life Arnold action, and I get it. You know, a movie like The Sixth Day, the action is pretty exaggerated. It's, it's insane. It, it is very much movie action. But it feels like it's more of an attempt to be grounded. And I felt like some of the early parts of this movie were trying to do kind of grounded action. And I appreciated that from this point forward, it just became gonzo weirdo action. And that's where it really became fun. I think my favorite sequence in the entire movie, if not in the history of cinema, is where he's sent uh, Vanessa Williams, while he's drugged, a page to go to a secret meeting place in the zoo. Because that's the best place to hold meetings is late night in the zoo. Which, by the way, uh, just to focus in on yet another thing I didn't really understand, but don't care that much about. So shortly after uh, James Caan's character has asked the U.S. Marshals or FBI or whoever he's working with at this point Mm -hmm. to trace the call, they they trace it to an area, a safe house that she's now fled. Uh, We never really find out what happens to Mei Ling. Right. But they say, uh, well, were there any cabs called? Yeah. Shortly thereafter, I guess to highlight the fact that these people are not only good at hiding people, but also finding people. And they say some location, uh, this is New York City, they say place in Central Park, and then they say the zoo. And he says, that's it, the zoo. He would tell her to meet at a public place. And I was just thinking to myself, Central Park's a pretty public <laughs> place. Isn't pretty much everywhere in New York a public place? Yeah, so, uh, I mean... I get what he should have said is that's it. It's the zoo. There's going to be an action set piece there. <laughs> Watch out for those cages, guys. <laughs> yeah. And so what follows is a sequence where they're on the run throughout the zoo, and I love that the score became this like <laughs> jungle music. It yeah. reminded me of Jurassic Park all of a sudden. <laughs> Pretty bongo heavy. <laughs> yeah. Alan Silvestri did the score and. He loved guitar solos in a lot of this movie, and in this whole section, it suddenly turns into the Jungle Cruise from Disneyland. It has been a long time since I heard that many wicked guitar riffs in a movie used to punctuate scenes. Yeah, you'd see Con Air do that like a year later, and it would be amazing then. It sounded like Joe Satriani and Bon Jovi just (laughs) back-to-back nodding at each other. (laughs) It did. It was amazing. And uh, I loved how many moments there were of Arnold just walking with those guitar solos going off at the same time. I thought that was great. But this moment 
to me, personifies what I look for in a movie, which is a guy shooting a cage of alligators that then come <laughs> out and eat people. I mean, it was interesting. You know, we referenced Mission Impossible earlier. That also had a guy, you know, a hero blowing up a tank to release creatures that were in water. It's a shame they didn't have alligators in there. Yes, I think this one actually outdoes it by having alligators that then eat people. All of the villains in the scene are eaten by these really, really hyperactive alligators. <laughs> well, just to be uh, biologically specific, I think they were crocodiles. No, alligators have wide noses. Crocodiles oh. have thin ones. Uh, w- which ones uh, look more like they're in a computer game? <laughs> and are made out of bad computer graphics because it was that kind. Alligator, because that's Leatherhead from the Ninja Turtles video game. <laughs> anyway, one of the things we like to do on this podcast every once in a while is give a throwback to one of our favorites, uh, Carnosaur. Yes. Anytime we see some bad CG, this is the most Carnosaur moment I have seen in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> like these alligators looked like they were just repurposed Carnosaurs. Yeah, yeah. I was getting flashbacks to Anaconda's Hunt for the Blood Orchid. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I don't want to knock it too much. I'm, I'm willing to be a little bit forgiving. It was 96. It was 96. But even in 96, uh, I think they, they could have done a little bit better. Question. Does this alligator set piece get put in this movie if Jurassic Park doesn't come out a few years earlier? I don't think so, actually. That's a good point. Plus, d- also, the year before this, you had Jumanji as well. And then Carnosaur, I think, was 94. Yeah. Uh, 93, 94, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. I don't know no, that no, Carnosaur was usually in no, Nobody but... in a boardroom was saying, Carnosaur, it's a big hit. Yeah. Yeah, but you could definitely see some influence of having people eaten by reptilian creatures. Like, that felt very Jurassic Park, plus the score, which felt... Actually, it reminded me a lot of the Lost World score that would come the next year, John Williams' score, mm-hmm. which is so good. This part of the movie as well, it also made me realize, I know that there are sometimes conflicting or overlapping jurisdictions in law enforcement. Sure. I'm pretty sure that no matter what agency you work for, whether it's state or federal or local, it is totally unacceptable to vacate a zoo and just start spraying machine guns (laughs) everywhere. Yeah. At this point, the James Conn villain has gone full-blown insane. He's just running around unloading weapons like a madman. Well, I I was thinking to myself at this point in the movie... How is James Conn going to explain this to anyone? Yeah, because James Coburn is his superior. And James Coburn seems like one of those superiors that's kind of out to lunch. He doesn't really know what's going on. He he seems a little bit like the commandant in uh, Police Academy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Was that that Lloyd Bridges? No, it wasn't. It was, I don't, George Gaines, I think his name was. Okay. Was he the dad on, or the, the father figure character on Punky Brewster? I have, I have no idea. We're I'm, just confusing our elderly <laughs> actors with white hair. <laughs> yeah, could have been uh, Leslie Nielsen. I'm suddenly having flashbacks to that episode of Punky Brewster where a kid got trapped in a fridge. But I digress. <laughs> but um, did he get a did he get a shrapnel spike through his hand? Well, you like know, he didn't erase it. No, he didn't. I think it, that's part of the connection too. Is they hid behind a fridge, didn't they? That's right. It all ties to Punky Brewster. Six degrees of Punky Brewster. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, they go to the zoo. They they get out of there. This is the point in the movie where Schwarzenegger's character has now been framed as being the antagonist. And I'm not sure just how convinced James Coburn's uh, uh, Witsec chief is. But anyways, he seems to go along with it and, you know, wiggles his finger at James Caan and says... 
You know, bring him back alive, okay? Yeah. He's a very easygoing superior in a situation like this where you got people running around the streets firing guns in zoos. Arnold Schwarzenegger does very little to try and convince him that he's innocent. It's just a short, one-minute-long phone call where yeah. he, he makes a decision, well, I guess I gotta go get some evidence. Isn't uh, Vanessa Williams evidence? Yeah, that's the, kind of the whole point. That's why she's in the program. But again, yeah. we're going to have to ignore that. And that's when they find out or they they establish that the evidence data disk that was in the evidence locker <laughs> for no reason yeah. uh, can only be accessed on the computer that, the she, vault. that she copied it on in the first place. And they need to go there. <laughs> And uh, along, that, re- that reporter's story was going to go nowhere. <laughs> and along the way, that's when they need to enlist Robert Pastorelli for uh, the least convincing and most confusing diversion yeah. of all time. Yeah. Because uh, one thing I know, having a lot of experience in uh, high-level, uh, needlessly violent corporate security, obviously, is that I am always taken in by uh when we have a building in lockdown by pizza guys barging through the front door and then saying they have a pizza for someone that nobody knows who ordered it oldest trick in the book yeah not to mention the the, you know then having a fake seizure yeah of course of course and so where do we go from there the infirmary yeah (laughs) yes where they are using defibrillators on a man who is conscious and saying no 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 (laughs) no stop shocking me with the defibrillator (laughs) insane absolutely insane <laughs> i mean I, I guess it's there for for comic effect it's interesting that the, they they bring him to the infirmary in this building it's amazing that they would have the you know a corporate tech company has an infirmary with medics on 24 <laughs> 7 but whatever <laughs> it's true yeah and it's then a- arnold shows up in an ambulance yeah. And he's stolen this ambulance. I guess they don't really care when ambulances get stolen. <laughs> I guess not. Uh, not to mention, I'm pretty sure at this point, everybody, whether you were a bad guy uh, who knew that Arnold Schwarzenegger was taking the fall al- along with uh, Vanessa Williams, or you're a good guy who didn't know, yeah, everybody at this point has been probably given a picture or at least a description of these people. Right. Not to mention that if you're corporate security and she's an executive in this building, yeah. they know who she is. Right. <laughs> like, They've worked with her for years. <laughs> but, you know, nothing like a pair of sunglasses and a paramedic's hat. Uh, oh, you're forgetting the ponytail. <laughs> the ponytail. Yeah. No, that was the security guy <laughs> at the start who uh, says, we've got a problem. Right, yeah. Anyways, so they, they go in there. It, it, it's not a particularly well-conceived plan. Right. But it goes off okay, right? Yeah, it does. You know, they go and are working on the disk, and then apparently the disk can be erased from another computer. I'm not sure how that works, but, uh, well, there you have it. I'm not sure if the title Eraser refers to Arnold Schwarzenegger or the people who can erase disks remotely. Well, I thought it was interesting that once they did actually erase the disk remotely, the ponytailed tech guy actually sent them a message on the screen that said, you have been erased. He knew Arnold Schwarzenegger's catchphrase. (laughs) That's handy, eh? I guess so. Maybe he just put two and two together. I mean, if the guy calls himself the eraser, there's only so many catchphrases he could have. And, you know, while they're there, they have to engage in a bunch of other unconvincing espionage-type things. Uh, Possibly my favorite is 
when the code to the vault door, which holds, uh, I guess, billion-dollar secrets, right, can be opened if you just shoot the code <laughs> with a shotgun. Uh, yeah. Um, I-, I wonder if safe and vault producers today <laughs> have constructed or have, have worked around this so that yeah. anyone can't just smash the keypad and have the vault or safe open. Yes. And this, of course, you know, is how we get the whole weapons reveal and that there's going to be a deal going down at the docks that Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to have to stop. And and, and who is the deal going to go down with? Someone? It's like an evil, a criminal from another country. Who was he? He was a Russian mobster. Yeah, Russian mobster. I like this movie because we just haven't seen Russian mobsters as antagonists in movies before. We saw them in a movie last week (laughs) (laughs) when we did our Red Heat. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, played by, and the Russian mobster in this case is played by Oleg Krupa, who is a bit of a journeyman actor who plays whatever secondary Russian character you need to play in a movie or TV show at a given time. Pretty much, yes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of secondary characters or secondary character actors who pop up in this movie, Nick Chinland as um, James Caan's, I don't know, sidekick of some sort. I love seeing this guy. He always plays great creeps. He played Donnie Faster in the X-Files episodes where he's a serial killer, a death fetishist, I believe they called him in that uh in those episodes and he also played billy bedlam in con air and i always love seeing him and he's a villain here um but yes yeah, so we move all the action to the docks as, as schwarzenegger says it now they're not just looking for themselves now they're uh fighting a whole new era of world terrorism so the stakes have just gotten huge right which for an arnold movie is very common <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we get to the docks and he's Brought in uh, Robert Pastorelli's friends, I guess, former, you know, who are on the mob, and they help him. They're kind of these wise-cracking wise guys who show up pretty happy to just declare armed warfare on a team of Russian soldiers. It, it, was, it was pretty funny, I thought, actually, to see uh, Joe Vitarelli yeah. uh, as one of these mobsters, because he's a guy... Uh, talk about typecast, this guy <laughs> plays nothing but uh, gangsters, mobsters, yeah. and, and that side of thing. I think he was last seen as uh, Robert De Niro's confused henchman and analyze this and analyze that. Yeah, which was the first one? Uh, I think it was analyze this, right? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was fun in those movies. But yeah, so then we get a full-scale action sequence where Arnold is wielding two rail guns, one in each hand. And this is one of the moments I remembered from this movie. There was a few. But this was one of the main ones. Like, I remembered the alligators. I remembered Arnold with the two guns, one in each hand. And I remembered him a little bit later jumping and grabbing onto a cargo container with one hand. Those are the three images I remembered from Eraser. And the rail guns, we need to talk about the rail guns because I have questions, Tony. There was a lot of discussion at the time that these are real weapons that are in use in the military. Uh, is this true? <laughs> Uh, my recollection of it was that the Navy yes. had been, um, at the time, I'm not sure if they're still at it or not, but at the time they were trying to create uh, rail guns that would uh, sit on the deck of a ship sure. and would fire basically Coke can-sized aluminum cylinders right. at very, very fast speeds uh, for long distances that could, uh, just because of the velocity yeah. that the impact would be enough to to disable another ship right and that they had a couple of these 
experimental things out there, but certainly nothing that I think was in practical use at the time. But I could be wrong. I'm not an expert in this kind of thing. They weren't x-ray guns, were they? No, that was uh, the video game Perfect Dark. (laughs) I was also reminded because, yeah, at the time they really hyped these guns as like a real world thing when this movie was on the promotional tour. But I remember... Uh, about three years later, there's a Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode all about a sniper who's using a gun that can do this. And this is the 24th century this episode is taking place. And people are like, he has a rifle that can see through walls. <laughs> so apparently in the 24th century, it's a big deal, but we can do them in 1996. <laughs> I don't know if Eraser and Star Trek Deep Space Nine share the same universe. Possibly not. Possibly not. Um, but, uh, yeah, th- I, that was a real thing, I guess, in the 90s, was guns that could go through walls. Because, as you said, Perfect Dark, the video game, had, like, a gun that did that, and that was a big feature of that, that game, that you could do that. Yeah, what other guns going through walls were there? There's gotta be more, right? Maybe in Duke Nukem or something? I don't know. Yeah, maybe we should just leave that one. Yeah, I'm sure that they were probably going on in movies and stuff like that but, at the time. But, I mean, while, while all this is going on, I mean, it had possibly the best backflip disarm yeah. move I've ever seen Schwarzenegger stunt double perform. <laughs> Done but, by someone from Cirque du Soleil. But similar to the to what I thought at the zoo, um you know these these guns, these these light speed rail guns, yeah. uh they cause a lot of damage when they hit things. Yeah, right? yeah. Like they don't just they don't just uh, go through things. They hit and they explode like a grenade launcher. Right. And it's something I've noticed in action movies that take place in warehouses and docks or in warehouse districts. Yeah. These, what are actually always, you know, very, very busy and very much occupied uh, industrial areas of a city. Yeah. Are always totally vacant. Yes. And you can just blow up whatever you want and nobody notices. Like, where are the police (laughs) and everyone else who would be noticing? Like, there's literally buildings exploding cars exploding yeah. guns going off yeah. uh where is this warehouse district of baltimore that <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares that the entire thing is on fire yeah no it's excellent point we see it in so many movies i guess the a-team was maybe the last time i saw it i'm sure it's probably happened since but the a-team is the one that jumps to mind but uh boy this action ending i thought was actually pretty great though it had well-shot action of bodies being pulverized by these weapons, which is kind of all I wanted. That's right. I thought so, too. I mean... And we should say, this movie was directed by Chuck Russell, who was mm-hmm. kind of a journeyman. Uh, he kind of broke onto the scene doing horror stuff, like the Blob remake and uh, the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. And then he really got lucky. He directed The Mask with Jim Carrey, and that was a massive hit. And him and Arnold were going to work together on something else. Don't know what it was, but they wound up doing this instead. And so, like, Chuck Russell jumped from The Mask, where he was super hot, to getting this movie. I think on paper, you look at Eraser now and you say, you know, following up, in terms of blockbusters, following up True Lies is kind of weird for Arnold to go from a James Cameron movie to a Chuck Russell movie. But at the time, Chuck Russell was hot and had the ability, I think, to lock down a major project like this. Yeah, Chuck Russell, I think a lot of his early stuff, he uh, had worked a little bit with Frank Darabont, who I think was a screenwriter on this one. Uh, Okay, so basically this movie had a lot of screenwriters. There were two... I think John Milius was involved at some point, He was involved. There was two main ones. Uh, Tony Perrier, who 
has like no credits. He wrote something called the Popcorn Movie Review, and he also wrote two TV episodes in the 2000s. One episode of a show called Street Time, and one of a show called Queen of the South. I've never heard of either of these things, and that is it. Maybe he was trying to live up to his name in the 90s and write one screenplay per year. Or he was inspired by a script and erased himself. <laughs> I don't know, it's very strange. But it was also written by Waylon Green, who'd done a lot more interesting things. He did uh, the movie The Wild Bunch. He uh, wrote Sorcerer for uh, Willie Friedkin. He co-wrote Robocop 2 after Frank Miller wrote his hallucination draft. And... Uh, Ultimately, Waylon Green would jump over and become a major producer and writer on Law and & Order and NYPD Blue and like police procedurals like that. And this movie also has a story credit by Michael uh, S. Chernuchin, who also became a huge Law & Order guy. So it's interesting that two of the main minds behind this movie, which is a really absurd, kind of nonsensical movie, would go on to write very hard-hitting like procedural legal television. fiction, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I really want to know is how were Frank Darabont, and more importantly, John Milius of Conan the Barbarian fame involved? I don't know. This movie had real script problems during shooting, and so they were two of the people brought in to try and save it. They were not alone. They also brought in uh, William Wisher, who wrote Terminator 2, as well as Graham Yost, who wrote Speed. So they were calling in heavy hitters to save this project. And you can see that the final product is not the most sensical of movies. <laughs> well, it's sensical. It's just not uh, logical. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of not that logical, let's get to the epilogue of this movie. Well, maybe before we get on to that, we should... Uh, one of the things we like to do on Arnie Geddon, for those of you who have been joining us, you'll know. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, you won't. Is we try and spot uh, Sven Ole Thorsen. I still haven't confirmed that I'm actually pronouncing his nordic european name correctly but it's i too I, late at this point it's too late i'm committed but uh he's uh, arnold schwarzenegger's most frequent collaborator he's in most of the schwarzenegger movies especially the stuff from the 80s and 90s so we play a little game which is can you spot Finn before you read about him on imdb basically right and in in this case to be perfectly honest i couldn't yes could you no. He is in there. We did go back and take a look, and he is one of the Russian gangsters who gets very quickly gunned down by these uh, seemingly very professional gangster trade unionist murderers. Yeah. So, Sven, it was good to see you again. Well, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> and second time. How much do you think he gets paid for that job? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'd be interested to know. He seems like a pretty jolly guy. He does. He does. So let's get to the ending now, because this movie, a normal movie, would have had James Caan get crushed by a you know cargo container or something and called it a day. Well, he was crushed by a cargo container. Yeah, but that's not the ending of his character. No, it's not. He's crushed by the cargo container. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't kill him. Right. In fact, Schwarzenegger, who's also on top of this cargo container when it falls... Uh, I'm amazed that both of them weren't killed, but I guess they're both just that tough and that good. Do you think this was a reshoot? It could have been. Who knows? It's tough to really know. Yeah, it's weird. Anyways, Schwarzenegger's character uh, goes in, tries to lift off this piece of metal off of James Conn's character. It's not really clear why that's that important, given that about this time is when the ambulances and other first responders... Uh, I guess they were they were responding to other things at the time. Yeah. They, they start showing up here about 
<laughs> an hour late. It's funny because early, early, early in the movie, right in the opening section, Arnold, when he's helping Robert Pastorelli, uh, you know, and saving him, he calls the police and says, there's been a murder at this house. Guys, grab all your clothes. We got to go. The police are there in about 20 seconds. Whereas you have a huge firefight at the docks and it takes like 15 minutes for them to get there. Maybe that's why. Maybe they were just responding to a bunch of witness protection agents <laughs> all the time. Yeah. But anyway, so the Schwarzenegger goes to help and uh, James Caan in uh, totally untrope-like fashion, rather than accepting the help, uh, tries to shoot Schwarzenegger's character. Right. Uh, James Caan's character, uh, what I would expect in a scene like this is that uh, Schwarzenegger then has to kill him or he accidentally falls off something and sure and, you know, and that's the end of the movie and the the jig is up the uh undersecretary of defense is arrested and we, everybody goes home happy maybe vanessa williams and arnold schwarzenegger get married right something like that yes that's not what happens no uh so what does happen well it cuts to um james con and the uh the undersecretary coming out of the courthouse and reporters being like, so you guys are going to be indicted for treason. And they get into a limo and they're like, yeah, we're going to get out of this. No problem. <laughs> and Vanessa Williams says to Schwarzenegger, like, they're going to get off, aren't they? And he's like, probably. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is a really bleak ending. And then Arnold walks with Vanessa Williams. They get into a red van. And then the van explodes. That's right. And... At that point in the movie, I wasn't convinced. I was pretty sure I was going to see a moving sewer grate underneath the van, and we did. Yes, of course. And then these guys, they just go off in their limo. They're talking about all the bad things they're going to do. Yeah. Uh, and then James Caan turns to Andy Romano's character and says, you know, that was a really awesome plan blowing up that van. You right. Know, you're, you're a real pro. And Andy Romano's character says, well, that wasn't me. Yeah. Uh, you think they would have maybe mentioned that first right. when they got in there instead of talking about you know what local sports team had won. They didn't seem that shocked by this van exploding. Like, I feel like I would be startled. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out then the phone rings and the car breaks down on a uh, train track. Yeah. And, and we find out Robert Pastorelli was the one driving the car. That's right. Yeah. Who then leaves uh, as the... Train starts to arrive, and there's an extended scene. I really enjoyed it. Normally, uh, I'm a bit of a talker in movies that I've seen before. And Cameron, you like to berate me and tell me to be quiet, tell me to save it for the podcast. But I right. think both of us had a, a a bit of fun there, just saying various possible train-related Arnold Schwarzenegger lines uh, yeah. as, as it came. You know, the train is never late. Choo choo boom boom. Thomas the tank engine says hello. And there's a, there, there's a everybody do the locomotion. Train has left the station. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um. And there's an extended scene. I think we hit about thirty different bad lines. Uh. Before you know the train hits the limo, which explodes like it was full of gasoline and fireworks. <laughs> On and, the Fourth of July. And then uh, Schwarzenegger then says they caught a train. Roll credits. Yeah. It was a very, very sudden ending. Yes. Weirdly sudden. Part of me wonders if there was an alternate ending where the two of them just went to prison. And they were like, audiences aren't going to think this is that cool. And so they reshot it with something far bigger and more insane. An alternate ending where they walk along the beach and they find the head of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> 
<laughs> Stay tuned for our Arnold Projects That Never Were podcast episode. And that is a real episode we're going to do at some point. But, um, yeah, I, did this feel to you like a tacked-on kind of ending? Like, it reminded me a little bit of Die Hard 3, which ends, you know, you think it has an ending, but then it cuts to, like, the border of Canada, where John McClane's, like, rolling around on the ground being chased by a chopper, where Jeremy Irons is in it. And he's shooting cables down. Meanwhile, Samuel Jackson is in another chopper going like, Go McLean! Go McLean! <laughs> and you're like, how did we get here? Like, this movie seemed to be following a very linear path and we suddenly wound up in Crazy Town. That's what this ending felt like to me. You know what I think might have happened is I think they might have thought to kill James Conn's character at the docks. Yeah. But then they realized that he was actually the the heavy in the movie yeah and he needed to be the guy who was killed last sure he but, would have been though but maybe they thought well if we kill him in the docks what's the loose end we got to wrap up with the actual big heavy with andy romano's undersecretary of defense you just show him getting arrested and call it a day yeah i agree with you i i'm, I'm not sure what went on there but mm. i mean sometimes schwarzenegger's one-liners are jarring or not particularly well delivered some are obviously better than others right but to say they caught a train and then roll credits yeah i don't think it's ever been uh that jarring uh because it just it's the last thing that stuck out in my mind i don't think so what did you think of the catchphrases he had in this movie did you feel like they worked like were they ones that were memorable they were memorable in the sense i remembered him saying your luggage i remembered that one very well I feel like the train is the one they wanted people to walk out, like, cheering over. But I feel like your luggage was the one people remembered. Uh, I also remembered when he, after the skydiving scene, and he shows up to at, at the zoo to save Vanessa Williams. Yeah. He, she says, you're late. And he says, traffic. Right, right, right. I thought it was interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the skydiving sequence. There's a little bit at the end where he lands in, like, a dump. And there's, like, young children hanging out in a dump at night. And, um... He lands and says, like, where am I? And this little girl says, Earth, welcome. And this opens the same summer. The catchphrase of Will Smith's character in Independence Day is, welcome to Earth. That's a, that's a good catch, Yeah, man. 96 connections, you know? There's tons of them with Mission Impossible and yeah. Independence Day. Yeah, but just the, the one-liners in this movie, some of them hit, some of them didn't. I don't think there is any... There's no home runs. There's no real classics, but yeah. there's no total duds. I agree. I agree with that. Okay, so what did you think of Chuck Russell's direction? I was surprised, actually, that the guy who did The Mask uh, was able to do such serviceable action, to be honest. I actually enjoyed the action in this. It's not James Cameron quality, but I actually think it's pretty effective and a lot of fun to watch. It's coherent. I can understand what's going on. There's some good setups and payoffs to, you know, big violent moments. One of my favorite things in movies is when they can find ingenious or clever ways to kill a bad guy. And there's tons of examples of that throughout this movie, where people die in horrible ways, usually very creatively. What do you think the death count in this movie was to save this this one uh, Cyrus executive, Vanessa Williams? I think 40? It's probably up there. Yeah, yeah. I think about 40. You know, it's interesting Chuck Russell does this movie... And then he really goes on to do nothing. Because he did, like, the Kim Basinger movie, Bless the Child, which just tanked. Then he did the Scorpion King for The Rock, which did okay. And just produced, like, seven sequels, you know, starring Randy Couture. Well, it also produced uh, 
<laughs> every other rock movie ever sure made. sure and then his most recent movie was the john travolta straight to video movie i am rap so it is weird that like this guy does the mask and eraser and just nothing really of note else it's just weird i guess hollywood's maybe a bit fickle maybe he made enough money that he decided to chill out who knows maybe it's weird how some directors will continue onwards despite the fact they suck you know, like Brett Ratner directed movies for how long before he got taken down by the Me Too movement? And he was terrible. His movies all stunk. And yet, like, Chuck Russell does some really serviceable to really... I think The Mask is actually a really, really fun movie. He does some really good stuff, and, you know, he just kind of disappears into nowhere. Yeah, who knows? I, it's I weird know. how Hollywood works. It's all connections, people. It's all a game. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that, the moral of this week's that's, podcast. <laughs> that's how we got where we are. So <laughs> maintaining connections, relationship yeah. building. <laughs> that and cheap recording equipment. <laughs> so let's talk about the movie. It's kind of final thoughts. Eraser. It's a movie that I think when it was released there was at least a little bit of fanfare that this was gonna be another Arnold classic. Didn't really prove to be the case. A little, you know, factoid. We watched this movie in a duo pack of Eraser and Collateral Damage. So it's not like Eraser's getting its special Blu-ray, special, special edition releases. It's getting tacked on with other kind of disappointing Arnold movies. No, but if you look at this movie, I'd say the two Schwarzenegger movies that this one is the most similar to are probably The Sixth Day and True Lies. I agree, yeah. How do you think Eraser holds up compared to those two movies? I think it's a more watchable, fun movie than The Sixth Day. The Sixth Day, to me, was pretty pedestrian stuff. It's it's just not that energetic. It's much more of like a fugitive-type movie, just not as good as The Fugitive. Um, although Cindy the Sim Doll is very memorable. Um, but this one, I just think it has enough go-for-broke, big-scale action to make it a really fun movie. Is it a great movie? No, I think True Lies falls closer into... Like a great action movie of the 90s. So here's a little bit of a derivative question from that. Yeah. Which movie had a better plane scene? True Lies, Eraser, or The Sixth Day? Well, <laughs> it has to be has to be True Lies. True Lies is the best. The worst was The Sixth Day with that stupid, <laughs> stupid CG futuristic plane. The plane in Eraser was pretty CG and stupid looking too. But it was fun, damn it. <laughs> but no, like, I think Eraser is a super fun movie, and I think you have to draw that dividing line sometimes with Arnold movies. Which ones are legitimately great, and which ones are just really fun? And I think Eraser is really fun, but I don't think it's great. <laughs> For a lot of the reasons highlighted in the previous hour of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it does kind of, it does feel like a movie that is still made in the golden Schwarzenegger era. Yeah. But the... The gold is starting maybe to rub off a little bit by the time this one's released. And it's still a super fun movie. I, I really loved watching it again, actually. But it it's a bit of a last gasp for it, Arnold. It is in some ways. Because you would see the ones he would do coming up. You know, we covered the sixth day, but we're going to cover more of them coming up. They would have to find ways to kind of reposition what Arnold was. Yeah, this movie is still holding true to the Arnold as icon ideal. Because coming after this, I mean, you have... Batman and Robin, End of Days, end of days Sixth Day, and it's really collateral damage. It's uh, a lot of everyman stuff, and then, of course, the really cartoony superhero stuff. 
And then finally, uh, it wasn't really until Terminator 3 came back around that Schwarzenegger really had a, a proper blockbuster starring vehicle again. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And so I do think this movie's interesting for that. I think it's just a really fascinating movie to look at when you consider what a year 1996 was for action movies. Because you have, you know, we referenced The Rock. The Rock and Michael Bay's direction really did change the face of action movies. And you would see going forward that Bruckheimer approach would stick in movies like Con Air into kind of the end of the decade at least. And Michael Bay is still going now. But, you know, that action really did change the way that we watched action movies as well. This same year, not, you know, on the box office top charters or anything, but Rumble in the Bronx is released. And you see a real craze of that Jackie Chan-style martial arts action, which was kind of kicked off the year before with Mortal Kombat, which showed, like, Asian-influenced martial arts action that people hadn't really seen before in North America. And then the Jackie Chan stuff really opens the door for, like, that crossover of John Woo coming and, you know, all that sort of stuff that follows. It almost sounded like you think Mortal Kombat's a classic. I don't think it's a classic. I think it's super fun. But I think it's actually kind of important with action cinema because i think it does mark the earliest shift towards that type of action i'm going to disagree with you on the mortal Kombat scene okay fair enough i think mortal Kombat. (laughs) i agree with you that it's fun yeah but i think it is uh an absolute steaming blip on the (laughs) i disagree i don't think north american movies were doing that type of action really at that point in time (laughs) Poor action? No, it's like well-shot martial arts action. <laughs> we'll have to revisit it. We will, in, in, in our spin-off podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mortal Kombating. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Yeah. That there was a transition kind of around the mid to late 90s uh, away from the uh, tough bodybuilder, smash everything in sight, uh, Schwarzenegger. And kind of shoot everything into like, you know, just tons of explosion kind of stuff. Yeah, away from the Schwarzenegger, Stallone type stuff. I guess there was some martial arts stuff going on with, say, Van Damme and Chuck Norris and all all those guys. But those movies were never shot the way Jackie Chan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and also a move away from, uh, and you can see it even in Eraser here, away from these practical special effects and the focus on these big, huge actors, and more onto the uh, computer generated effects ultimately leading to to what we have today which is you go see an action movie today it's just cg everywhere and the cg is the focus of those movies did you see that new movie skyscraper with the rock i did like i thought that was an example of just like wall-to-wall terrible cg and kind of boring action i you enjoyed it i agree with you but it it was a movie that i i went to see it with my wife and we uh, we... Broke up shortly after. <laughs> that was the final that was straw. My, uh, my first wife. We call her the skyscraper lady. But, uh, we enjoyed it, but it was a movie that we laughed the whole way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had a good time. I think that that might be kind of what they were going for. It's not really clear. Yeah. It was a movie actually that, <laughs> as I was watching Eraser, I was thinking a lot about Skyscraper yeah. for that reason. Because there was a bunch of characters acting without any real sense of what they should actually be doing right uh and action sequences that didn't really make a lot of sense in the context of the plot right uh but it didn't really matter you're just gonna have to sit there and 
take it. Right. <laughs> if ever there was a note to go out on Eraser with, I think that's it. Yeah. But I think it's a fun movie, and I could totally see rewatching it. Skyscraper or Eraser? Not it. Not Skyscraper. <laughs> Definitely Eraser. It's so, not... so we're on the same page with Eraser. We're on different pages with Mortal Kombat and Skyscraper. Correct. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> but I could totally see myself watching Eraser sooner than the 22 years I took between the first and second viewing. Because I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. But uh, I am very curious to see more of these late 90s, early 2000s Arnold movies. Because we haven't covered a lot of them. And so I'm actually looking forward to touching on some of these other ones like End of Days. And There's not too many of them, really. There's not. Collateral Damage really interests me because I just don't remember much of it at all. Yeah, I remember having a very negative opinion of Collateral Damage when I saw it. But I, I'm interested to revisit that and see... If that's still the case. And besides End of Days and Batman and Robin, I think that's about it. Yeah. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s Schwarzenegger. The end came quick. Well, we're not at the end yet, Cam. Uh, there's still Under the Sea 3D coming out at some point in the next several years, apparently. Stay tuned, folks. And speaking of stay tuned, Tony, what are we going to do in two weeks on the next episode? Well, we're going to have a bit of a special episode next time, Cam. Normally, we watch and we discuss a movie. We have had a couple of special episodes where we've looked at some of the non-Schwarzenegger projects that have spun out, primarily Predator movies, actually. Yeah, we're going to do more of those. <laughs> we'll I do think. more of those. I was, th- I was thinking we'd done more, but it's all been Predator movies. Yeah. But what we're going to take a look at, and I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm actually really interested to do the research and dig into this one. Uh Schwarzenegger projects that could have happened, that almost happened, but didn't happen. And we can talk about the what-ifs. We'll give some you know, plot details as to what they might have been, who was attached. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Projects that, that made it to pre-production and then got stuck in development hell. Right, and some major directors attached to do some really cool projects yeah. with Arnold. Who he could have worked with and when. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a hell of an episode, actually. Me too, me too. So, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed listening to us, jump on over to our iTunes page and leave us a review. They help us with rankings. All that sort of nonsense that will keep this podcast alive and fruitful for many years to come. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at ArnieGeddonPod. Uh, you can email us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Cam V is in Vanessa Williams Smith. Tony. You can also check out our website, arniegeddon.com. You can find me if you want to email me directly and cut Cam out of the loop. Uh, Tony G, Tony like the name, G like the letter, at arniegeddon.com. Okay, so we'll be back with the Arnie Projects That Never Were. Wait!